0: Welcome to another episode of the Capitol Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I am your host. and the Executive Director of American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Jeff Peterson, who's had a long career in government working both for the Environmental Protection Agency as well as for Congress on a whole suite of different issues related to water and really most of his career, the latter part of his career, and we'll hear about this, uh, working on climate change. And he has recently Published, uh, written and published a book called A New Coast, Strategies for Responding to Devastating Storms and Rising Seas. So uh, really glad uh, to be talking to him today. Thanks for being here, Jeff.
1: Well, thanks. Great. I really appreciate your uh, invitation. Um,
0: Looking forward to digging into the process of of writing a comprehensive book on on coastal challenges from climate change, and then uh, talk about some of the ideas that Jeff presents in here. Uh, But first, we couldn't be here without the the support of our generous sponsors. So a quick word from our sponsors.
2: The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own... Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and saltwater? well the dune science group does they offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last they can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end including permitting design and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com
0: and again thanks to all our sponsors. Coastal and, and shore protection is a critical part of addressing our new coast, or at least in, in the process uh, of adapting to what a new coast will be. And so we hope you can visit all of our sponsors and, and use their services as we, as we address some of the challenges that we're facing. So let's, let's dive in. Uh, Jeff, why don't you start off, tell us a bit about yourself, your, your past, your career, um, how you came to write a book called A New Coast.
1: So thanks. Uh, As you said, I'm retired now, but I spent a career working on clean water and drinking water issues. Most of that was at the Environmental Protection Agency, starting in the Pacific Northwest and here in Washington, D.C. I also spent uh, some time working for Congress. But late in my career, I was assigned to work uh, with state and local governments to try and figure out how water programs could adapt to a changing climate drought, heavy rainfall, warmer waters, and of course, severe storms and sea level rise. But I was especially interested in coastal impacts and ended up chairing the EPA's work group on sea level rise and representing EPA on an interagency sea level rise team. And when I retired in September of 2017, uh, just at at the same time, virtually the same time, uh, hurricanes uh, Harvey, Irma, and Maria devastated the southeast coast in Puerto Rico. Uh, That really inspired me to ask the question, why is the country not better prepared for these risks, Uh, which of course will be getting worse as sea level rises. I started reading and talking to people and decided that I could organize some ideas uh, that I was hearing uh, into a book, uh, framing some strategies that would help uh, get a handle on this problem. And that's what led me to uh, put put the book together.
0: Uh, Well, I'm looking forward to talking in depth about the book, but uh, let's hear your elevator pitch. What's your your 30-second synopsis of, of what it is and who it's for?
1: So coastal storms and rising seas are coming at the American coast with a one-two punch, uh, moving the current coast inland, essentially giving us a new coast. Today, the country's not prepared, and that's going to cost us thousands of lives and trillions of dollars. We need to develop a national program to respond to these risks as soon as possible, and we need to organize and advocate for these changes as essentially a campaign for a new coast.
0: I was sort of thinking about, There's a. am going to totally butcher this Star Wars quote, but somewhere Yoda says... Uh, you know, if you're not scared, you should be. Uh, in his good Yoda voice, and I think that's a little bit true. Uh, we have underestimated, or at least under considered some of the the threats to our coast, um, and we'll get into some of that. And then, but then I also appreciate that a good chunk of the book is how we put a national program together, how we start turning the tide, if you will, to address some of these issues. I'm a policy guy by background. I'm really looking forward to talking to policy, but reading this book. I was just amazed at the level of detail that you went into. You touch every program I've ever heard of, and hundreds of more, hundreds more that I haven't heard of. I was really interested in, in digging into the writing process a little bit. Can you talk about how you researched and and actually wrote the book that has this much detail on this many different policies?
1: So I did uh, give the whole research process a pretty uh, pretty intensive period of time and. Basically, a two-year effort, and I, I really enjoyed talking with people working at the local level. For instance, uh, in Norfolk, uh, in Los Angeles, South Florida, as well as talking to people in agencies here in D.C. and at colleges and universities, putting all that information together and structuring a book that started with uh, a good explanation of the problem and reviewed some of the impacts and the current efforts, but then uh, concluded with uh, a reasonable framing of what we could be doing now that would be commensurate with the scale of the problem uh, and build on what was already in place effectively. Uh, That was really the challenge. And uh, I have to thank my editor here at Island Press for her help in uh, pulling the essential ideas together and helping make a meaningful structure, uh, but really one of the hardest parts about writing the book I, I discovered as I got into it was that uh, there's so much to this topic that uh, you have to leave something on the cutting room floor, uh, and and so deciding uh, what to what to cut and what I just couldn't didn't have time and and word space to go into. Uh, was hard. I I wish I could have said more about science issues, Uh, some of the impacts I felt. I wish I could have covered in in more detail, but for another day.
0: (laughs) Um, Well, it it certainly felt like you got a lot in there. I I think almost every single chapter I felt like could have been its own book or at least its own section. Um, There's a lot of information in there. And in some cases I could tell you were sort of summarizing it or keeping it high level just because, you know, it's, it's, you know, an extensive detailed book as it is and going to more detail would be challenging. So who is your audience for the book? Who, who do you expect to read this? Who do you who do you think would find it of value?
1: So the core audience is people working to solve these storm and sea level rise problems in, in government, in nonprofit organizations, uh, engineering firms, the development community are all actively engaged day to day in working around and with these issues. Uh, but I hope uh, the book is interesting to anyone who loves a coast, uh, especially those who uh, want to help uh, protect it.
0: So as I was reading it, it certainly struck me as something that I would have almost definitely read if I was in uh, college currently. So when, I, when I, uh, I was an environmental studies and political science major and took a whole bunch of environmental policy classes in college. This was, you know, back when new climate change was happening, but it wasn't sort of top of everybody's mind. And this, this feels like the kind of thing there. Have you had outreach to academic universities? Do you see this as being sort of a, a, a part of a curriculum uh, in, in some of our coastal universities?
1: Well, I have uh, had a lot of great input from folks who teach uh, on both environmental policy, but also uh, other larger political dynamics Political science issues, and some very positive feedback. I, I hope that as um, as professors look at their course planning in the years ahead, that they'll choose to make these coastal issues an important part of a larger discussion of environmental policy, uh, and particularly climate change. Of course, those are those are big topics, and uh, lots of other things you could cover. But coastal storms and the th- the threat that sea level rise poses to uh, the millions, uh, tens of millions of people who live along the coast and the trillions of dollars of assets uh, that are at risk from storms and sea level rise really really should bring it to the the forefront of the policy uh, learning that goes on in colleges and then the policy making that goes on at state and local government, but also at the national level.
0: Um, another thing that I, I sort of thought, and we were talking a bit before the interview, is I found it very helpful because, because it's so detailed, because you have so many different sources, you have a, an incredibly uh, rich and complex bibliography. I think it's one of those things that I jotted down notes, and it, as I put together web blogs or whatever, this is the kind of thing that I'll be able to go back to and say, oh, I know I saw it in that book, um, and can use it sort of as a, almost a, sh- a shorthand uh, rola- or index file for all the information. Um, that you might want to talk about. Uh, speaking of that, because it has so much policy detail, there's so many different things. You talked about your research, sort of a two-year process. Can you talk a bit more about how you sort of brought all that together or how you actually got all that research? I mean, obviously you have years of experience in government, so some of that you knew, but how do you, how do you begin to dive into areas that you might not have had experience with um, and sort of get all the policy on that?
1: Well, as I as I said when we started, uh, most of my career was spent working um, on clean water and drinking water issues, water resources more generally, uh, and I I I did begin working around uh, just uh, around 2005 and six and on climate change more generally. But I, I'm not a climate scientist, and so I was fortunate that the time I was working at EPA to have uh, been engaged with people at the at EPA, but also around the federal government uh, who were working on the science issues of storms and sea level rise um, at NOAA and at other agencies. Uh, so I had I had a running start on understanding the science, which was a big help. It would have been pretty intimidating trying to to tackle a book about policy options for coastal storm and sea level rise and having to To learn the science issues from a standing stop. Fortunately, I didn't have to do that. Uh, I was also lucky that in the years I'd worked at EPA and in Congress, I did a lot of work with other federal agencies. So so I I understood programs uh, at NOAA, uh, like the Coastal Zone Management Program, the Sea Grant Program. Uh, I also worked uh, a lot with folks at the Army Corps of Engineers. So uh, of course, EPA and, and Army Corps share the, uh, the wetlands uh, permitting program jointly. Uh, and I also had uh, good exposure to uh, FEMA's many programs and responsibilities, so I didn't have a, a day-to-day working knowledge of those programs, but I had a pretty good understanding of, the, of how uh, disaster assistance worked, uh, how, how FEMA emergency response programs worked. It was great to have an opportunity to really dive in to read GAO and Congressional Budget Office reports on how the flood insurance program was working or not working and really building a better understanding of all that. But uh, I didn't have to discover those programs. I pretty much understood they were out there and, and had a general idea how they fit together.
0: You know, it's not every day I hear someone say, oh, it was just a great opportunity to read a GAO and a CBO report. I mean, those are not usually your your page turners, but they do have tremendous tremendous amount of information in them. So, Well, uh, you know, I could probably talk for the whole episode on how you wrote the book. It's fascinating to me. I can't even envision how I would go about doing something like that, especially something this comprehensive. But I do want to spend some time talking about what was included. Again, you go into a lot of detail about – frankly, how woefully underprepared the US is to address sea level rise and increasing storm intensity. And and you sort of note that there are efforts on sea level rise and there are efforts on storm intensity, but there hasn't been this sort of collaborative, there hasn't been uh, efforts to really look at the the two jointly, um, which to me makes, you know, that seems like a a sort of logical thing we should be doing. It's the thing that's driving coastal change, the two of them combined. Anything you wanna sort of talk about those two being pulled together
1: well, it really is critical to think about the coastal storm uh, and particularly storm surge risks, and the long-term risks from sea level rise as one problem. And one of the one of the key ideas I was trying to get across in the book is that it's well and good to plan for uh, more severe storms, particularly the storm surge flooding that will come as storms are grow worse. As a result of climate change. Uh, But you could make some pretty fundamental mistakes if you don't also consider the risk of sea level rise. And of course, the storm flooding that we've experienced, and for instance, in the 2017 hurricanes, the Harvey, Irma, and Maria uh, hurricanes, uh, we saw tremendous storm flooding, both from surge and also heavy rainfall. But fortunately, that flooding was site-specific. It wasn't the entire coast. Uh, and it was temporary. It, 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 was, it lasted uh, a while, all too long, but it, it eventually uh, drained away uh, and people were able to rebuild and, and rebuild their lives. Uh, sea level rise, on the other hand, uh, doesn't come to just one part of the coast or another. It's coming to the entire coast and it's coming to stay. It's, it's going to be flooding in the streets, Uh, not just at high tide, but uh, during high, low, and intermediate tides. And it's going to continue, not just for the next 50 years, the sea level rise. uh, Sadly, uh, you so often hear projections of sea level rise out to the year 2100. Uh, You might conclude that, well, that'll be it, and then we can move on. Uh, But that's just really a milestone on a longer Uh, a longer projection after 2100 into 2150, 2200, sea level rise uh, will continue and um, push back on the coast uh, all those future years. So thinking about the problem of coastal inundation as both the storm surge risk and the sea level rise risk together is pretty critical. Just one example one of the key ideas that that often uh, arises in response to the storm risk is is elevating buildings and and other infrastructure and 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 that makes good sense and is a good investment when you're particularly worried about the temporary uh, risk of storm surges. Uh, When you're talking about the the longer range sea level rise risk and water in the street around your feet uh, all the time elevating a structure is a little bit more problematic you might be able to keep the structure itself dry but you've got roads and access you've got to be able to get to the building you've got to be able to have water and sewer and power all those things become much more difficult when you're when you're talking about essentially having water in the streets much much more consistently if not all the time so so you have to think about how those things are going to play out together.
0: It seems like much of our uh, policy framework and much of the, the societal framework even is built to address flood risk and with floods being something that come but then go. And really, it's talking about how we can change that paradigm to be addressing inundation, which comes and then and then doesn't go. It's, it's a permanent state of flood.
1: Well, I think if we could do that, we'd... Uh We'd be off on the right foot, and a lot of the policy suggestions, which I I think we'll have a chance to talk about, I think uh, really do build from that basic uh, framing of the problem.
0: So let's talk about a lot of of the first part, probably almost two-thirds of the book, is really going through uh, case by case how... um, how we're underprepared. Looking at you know some positive things, but a lot of uh, areas in which we're unprepared, from national flood insurance policy to uh, to, to coastal management to private sector uh, development in coastal areas. Really, a whole bunch of different different things. Disaster planning. Uh, what do you see as the two to two or three most egregious ways we are unprepared for sea level rise? Or um, actively putting ourselves further in harm's way. And then the flip side, I'll throw both so we can have the con and positive. Are there two or three uh, programs that you think are working and are putting us on the right track?
1: Sure. So maybe I should start with the positive uh, framing of the discussion. I, sure. I think there is a good story to tell, particularly uh, really impressive and, and helpful uh, engagement in places around the coast for instance, uh, in Norfolk, in South Florida, in Los Angeles, uh, just to pick a few, um, there uh, is emerging uh, really regional cooperation to think about storm and sea level rise risks. And some of these efforts are still in the understanding the problem, assessing the risks, uh, but increasingly are moving into framing actual response strategies and policy direction. So I I think we have to recognize the value of that work and really make sure we build on that. Uh, A second area where I I see some positive developments is uh, uh, the United States military is taking climate change pretty seriously. Uh, You may remember uh, Tyndall Air Force Base in the Florida panhandle uh, got really walloped by Hurricane Michael. Uh, And, of course, Norfolk Naval Air Station... Um, or Norfolk base is um, also very much at risk. And um, there's a lot of work within uh, the Navy and elsewhere to look at options for uh, protecting that resource. And senior leaders seem to be taking the risk seriously, even if um, some of the recent official reports from the Department of Defense might might be seen as kind of playing down Some of these risks. And the final area of really sort of positive work, I think, is is generally in the entire area of science, understanding the problem. And uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration uh, is doing great work here. The National Climate Assessment process, an interagency effort uh, evaluating all the risks related to climate change, but also sea level rise and more severe storms, is working pretty well and in, in informing the country about these problems. So uh, I see all of those things as as positive.
0: So some some good local efforts, areas that can be built upon. Uh, U.S. military taking this very seriously, looking at how they can protect their bases. And then science, uh, some of the good work that's being done at the National Climate Assessment coming out of NOAA. Great.
1: Well, and turning now to the... Um, to what what we need to do better. Uh, That is, as you said, kind of a long list, but I'll pick a couple of things uh, to start with here. We really can be doing much better uh, with the basic question of transparency about some of the, the risks that we face from storms, and particularly sea level rise. We do not have a national standard for disclosing flood risk at the time of sale. Uh, there were some proposals in Congress to, to do this that uh, passed the House but, but weren't ultimately enacted. Some states uh, have adopted requirements for disclosure of flood risk at time of sale, and that's a positive step. But each state has a little bit different approach. Some are better than others, um, and not all states have, have tackled this problem. Uh, so a national standard would uh, be a big help. It would bring the the risk uh, of flooding into properties uh, to the attention of people who are are talking about making an investment in their principal financial asset. Uh, make them much more aware of of what they're buying and what risk they may have. And in addition. In not just talking to people about has, has this property had a flood risk in the past, which is what some of the disclosure is about, but uh, having disclosure of, well, what is the future of flood risk, not just from more severe storms, uh, but also from sea level rise. And I think we know now enough about um, what we are likely to see in the next 10, 20, 30 years of sea level rise where that's going to happen, uh, which properties are going to be at risk, that uh, someone making a major investment in a real estate property should should have transparent information about that risk. So that's one area. Mm -hmm. A second is that uh, I've covered in the book some of the research that talks about the number of people, millions of people, tens of millions of people, at risk of sea level rise, hundreds of communities uh, but also trillions of dollars of assets at risk, and most of that work is with respect to uh, what's on the what's on the coast today. So the population, the homes, the the assets, the infrastructure. But of course, those that population is growing steadily every day as we speak. Uh, the projections that we have, not just for coastal counties, but for the the narrow strip right along the first uh, first couple of hundred feet uh, back from the shoreline uh, suggests that that population will double by 2060. One thing we should keep in mind is that uh, when you understand uh, you have a problem, when you find yourself in a hole, uh, the first thing to do is stop digging. So we could do a much better job of discouraging people and, and, and developers and investors from getting into risky areas building infrastructure and homes that are at risk of storms and are at risk of sea level rise. The more we can steer people away from those areas now, uh, the better, the more manageable the problem that we'll face 10, 20 or 30 years down the road as sea level rise uh, becomes more pressing, uh, that more manageable that problem will be. So, we could talk about how to do that, but uh, a third area where I think we've, uh, we've really uh, need to look hard at, at rethinking our, our entire approach is that today the federal government uh, subsidizes flood insurance for people living in areas at risk of storm surge, but also at risk of sea level rise, uh, permanent inundation. Um, not only is that uh, putting the lives uh, of those people at risk. It's, it's putting uh, their property and a substantial federal investment uh, at risk. We should be thinking hard about whether we should continue providing flood insurance for new development in these risky areas. Uh, in addition, we have to think hard about uh, how long we can continue to offer flood insurance for existing properties. Uh, it was one thing to say, well, I bought this house or built this house at this coastal location before anyone really understood the sea level rise, storm surge risks. And so I shouldn't be penalized by having my flood insurance withdrawn. Uh, But today, I think we have a much better understanding of the flood risks. Uh, And if we were to begin telling people now that 20, 30 years from now, we need to be phasing out of flood insurance for all these properties that are in risky areas, uh, I think is a reasonable signal to send that that subsidy uh, is not there forever, uh, partly because there's a moral hazard to the federal government encouraging people to be in places that just aren't safe, uh, but also because it's financially unsustainable for the entire uh, national flood insurance program. So I think that's a that's a bitter pill, and will be uh, a hard a hard discussion. Um, and we need to we need to recognize that there are important consequences of that, particularly for uh, low income people. And we need to provide a a financial buffer and a backstop that will help people through that transition. And I've made some suggestions along that line in the book.
0: Yeah, no doubt some incredible challenges ahead. Uh, You know, we talked about transparency, which is really the sort of communication of risk. And I think there's a whole area on that. There's um, sort of growing population and assets on the coast. We're actually, as you said, digging our hole deeper. And then uh, flood insurance, we've sort of got this systemic framework that is supporting risky development. So all of these are sort of connected. I mean, they all have to do with risky behavior and are sort of not facing the truth about what the the risks are. Uh, You do uh, propose an idea of a national program. I would say, to me, it it struck me as not sort of a single unified national program, but a series of efforts that could be sort of lumped under uh, a a national framework. Is that a fair assessment of of what you're proposing?
1: Yes, I think that's that's a pretty good good nutshell. Really, when I stepped back uh, after looking hard at everything that was going on um, at the state and local level and, and the valuable national programs that are, that are already out there, um, you know, my conclusion was that uh, we needed to continue to support and promote that work, but that it was not enough and that the problems that we're facing were really bigger than what, uh, what could be ultimately uh, expected from well-intentioned uh, state and local efforts.
0: So, sorry to interrupt, but you're basically saying we can't simply fix existing policies. There actually need to be sort of new creation of new tools, new policy implementation, new economics to address the challenges ahead. Is that is that a yes. fair assessment?
1: Yes, we, need, we do need to fix some of the existing programs and, and that is part of the national policy framework, for instance, fixing the flood insurance program and the disaster relief program mm-hmm. needs to be on the national agenda. And that's something that uh, the federal government could offer to state and local governments that would support and bolster their efforts, not not undermine their efforts, which is kind of what we're doing now.
0: And, and I think it's it's worth noting probably at this juncture that a lot of what we've seen recently coming out of the federal government is actually probably steps backward in flood risk management or, or proposing uh, policies. You know, there were some steps forward a decade ago under the previous administration to assess uh, flood risk, to do some of the transparency work, to, to consider standards. And we've actually seen some of those be rolled back. So, I mean, what, yes. do you want to comment on that yes, at all?
1: Yes, uh, I sure do. Uh, so in addition to some of the, some of the big uh, kind of headliner programs like uh, the flood insurance program and the disaster relief program, We did make some real progress in the past 10 years, better understanding climate adaptation more generally, including coastal risks. We made some real progress with respect to uh, federal flood risk management standards, which FEMA developed, uh, which were revoked under the current administration. Uh, So we made some real progress in terms of understanding uh, how to evaluate uh, climate risks but particularly flood and sea level rise risks in major federal investments under the National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA. Uh, and and those that progress has the guidance and, and regs under those that process has, has been either revoked or proposed to be changed under the current administration. So there have been several sad uh, steps backward. I I hope uh, there'll be a chance to reconsider some of those decisions, uh, but that that won't, even, even those things uh, aren't enough. We need another level uh, to step up to a new uh, and expanded approach that includes not just fixing the current programs that we have out there, like flood insurance and disaster relief. We need new policies. We need for uh, national planning on infrastructure and ecosystems that look at these major systems as a as a whole along the coast, not just from one community to the next. And we need federal support for state and local plans that are uh, able to think uh, long term, as we discussed earlier, not just about uh, flood risks and storm risks, but the challenges of sea level rise and how we need to each individual can help each individual community uh, understand its unique circumstances and make the right decision uh, for that community but within the context of a bigger program
0: so you touched on a couple of them in your uh we're on page 262 of the book if you're following along at home You list out five key areas for a national program. I'm actually going to go ahead and and read these if you don't mind. Sure, go ahead. Because I thought they were a nice synopsis. So, number one is establish a new national coastal storm and sea level rise leadership capacity. I thought that was interesting, you know, just sort of really making this much more of a visible issue, Um, putting out leaders, uh, you know, and I think we're, that's an area that I'm a little bit optimistic about. I mean, you see, like who's our biggest climate leader right now? And it's a a 16 year old young woman from Sweden, right? So the the next generation is providing that leadership capacity. Um, The second uh, point you mentioned was revise existing flood and disaster response programs to account for rising seas. So again, touching on what we've been talking about, switching that framework from flooding to inundation. Um, Number three was define new coastal storm and sea level rise preparedness policies, which we sort of talked about. I might wanna push on that one, dig into that one a little bit. the one you just and then the two you just mentioned develop national sea level rise plans, so increase planning for coastal infrastructure and ecosystems. I thought a lot of work that, that I do when I'm not doing podcasts is sort of talking about natural infrastructure, how you can combine hard infrastructure with ecosystems and do some of that together. Really appreciated the way you discussed that in the book. And then number five was uh, provide new authority and funding specifically for state and community sea level rise, inundation and storm flooding preparedness planning. So Five bullets, a lot there. Each of those again probably could be you know major national initiatives, but um, but a nice a nice synopsis that I think would could help us pivot to be more prepared. Anything you want to dig well, in on there?
1: Well, sure. Let let me uh, just start. You uh, you mentioned leadership, and you know so often that's the intangible factor uh, in putting together a broader effort and uh, well thought out and and uh, economically rational. Uh, policies uh, are well and good, but if there isn't a spark to help people understand their importance and why we need to move in this direction, uh, it can go for naught. So um, I think it's really critical that we think hard about uh, what the national government can do to uh, provide leadership and and to support and strengthen uh, what state and and locals, uh, not just in government, in nonprofits and, and Uh, elsewhere, I I do talk in the book a little bit about uh, the the responsibility that uh, people working in professions related to coastal development, uh, real estate agents, uh, attorneys, uh, developers, people who are making decisions every day about how we manage the coast uh, piece by piece, uh, that leadership from from that professional class is is tremendously important, and I hope that that they'll step up. But national leadership uh, is critical, and and part of that is um, framing a way to have federal agencies work together more than in their silos. Uh, so I think we need progress there, and I think uh, it'd be really helpful to have state and local and and citizens represented in some kind of advisory committee that could speak to national policy choices and what the national government can do, help articulate what the national government can do that's most helpful to state and local governments.
0: So at the risk of going down a rabbit hole of cynicism and depression, what's your take? Is this possible? I mean, do we have a system of government that can take some of these fundamental actions to address this? I mean, how as, as sort of Hopeful as I wanted to be reading the, the new program, I, I also found myself feeling like, well, this isn't going to happen. You know, what would it take? How how can we how can we move forward? Do you do you see hope, or is this more of a path forward if we can fundamentally fix our politics? But that's a, a story for another day. What, what are your thoughts on that?
1: So I I uh, think there is hope that we can not just frame out. What a national program capable of responding to these problems is, but that we could actually adopt and implement it. One reason for that is that uh, the public understanding of climate change as a as a risk, not just uh, not just as a coincidental, uh, insignificant risk, but as a, a much more uh, existential risk to the country and and to the globe, uh, is growing and building and and that translates into a, a willingness to think about uh, problems that maybe were kind of parked as, well, that sea level rise uh, might be a threat to my house, but it's so far off, I don't really need to worry about it. I, I think that's evolving and, and changing. Uh, secondly, I, I think that uh, in the particular area of storms and sea level rise, there's still room for making a good case. And uh, the state and local governments that are beginning to think about their policy options are now to the point where they're going to be coming to the federal government looking for support, particularly financial support. That's going to translate into a recognition that, that gee, this is something my local community back home really cares about, so I should be supporting it at the national level. Uh, and I think in terms of advocacy, there's so much more that we can do. What A lot of advocacy to date has focused on a range of issues related to oceans and coasts, uh, all of which are important issues, but not so much on uh, storms and sea level rise. And I think uh, if we were to make a a better case, uh, particularly with the evolving information, the science and the understanding of uh, how important this is and how expensive and difficult it's going to be, there is a really good case to be made and that we shouldn't assume that that Congress, for instance, uh, or state and local government would would dismiss a problem before we've really given it our best pitch.
0: Yeah, I think it's that's a, a good, hopeful uh, take on the matter. I do sort of waver between feeling like, you know, we're up against an Im- immovable force with the, you know, recognition that things can also change relatively quickly. Um, you know, if you get that. If you get that that leadership and the populace speaking behind it, you can we can move quickly. I think one of the things I often talk to our members about is both the need to restore to maintain the infrastructure we have, but also to recognize that that infrastructure isn't going to be in place for forever. Um, you know how do you how do you both restore and retreat at the same time? Um, maintain the you know maintain the the the, the shoreline for um, the coastal homes and the the. I don't know whatever the hospitals, the roads are there, but at the same time, you also need to be planning for those future scenarios, and it's a it's a challenge. It's a it's a mental challenge. I also, I, I really like the chapter you had in here about um, sort of the the social impact and the psychological impact because I think that's that's very real and and it's very easy for us in the politics and in the DC sphere to be like, well, we just need them to move, or we, they should just do this, or if we just change the economics, but people's lives and emotions and families and and souls are connected to the places where they live. And that's it's going to be a real challenge.
1: Well, I, I absolutely agree. And I, I think um, sort of the social dimension of this is one of the most, most challenging and, and important aspects. I, I think we can um, do so much better than, uh, what we've done in response to past major storms, uh, uh, hurricane Katrina, of course, resulted in a huge displacement of, of people and, uh, disruption of lives, hurricane Harvey in particular. And of course, Maria in in, uh, Puerto Rico are still, um, causing ripple effects in terms of social and connectiveness of people. But that doesn't mean that we, we have to go through every one of these events, uh, Without having learned from the past, and so uh, I think we can do so much better on that, and and bringing people who are expert in these areas uh, have really thought about social psychological consequences, and and getting their input into how do we build a, a meaningful response, uh, particularly recognizing. Uh, that these storms and rising sea levels are going to be especially challenging for low-income populations. And uh, people with plenty of money can basically afford to move out of the way and not disrupt their lives that, that much. People without a lot of money have a harder time. And thinking about how we prepare uh, both to protect those people and also how we manage a process of moving to safer places uh, that recognizes uh, the interests of low-income populations is particularly important. And one of the things that I think the federal government could help uh, focus local, state and local plans on and, and really push to make sure that that doesn't become somehow not a key part of the planning that needs to happen at the state and local level.
0: A lot of good words, uh, a lot of really insightful things in this book. Uh, so before we, we do our sort of final question, I want to give you a chance to, to really plug the book. Uh, how, how can you buy it?
1: Sure. So uh, it's available on Amazon and several other uh, recognized uh, book sites. And of course, if you'd like, you can also go to the Island Press website Uh, It's available there, and there's actually a promo code for the book on the Island Press website uh, for a 20% discount, and the code is COAST, COAST. Please use that if you'd like. I look forward to hearing uh, anyone's comments, suggestions. I'm going to stay involved with uh, this whole general area, trying to work to advance some of these policies. And so I'd love to hear uh, anyone's reaction, comments. Or criticisms.
0: Glad to hear it's it's on Amazon. I think if it's not on Amazon, then it probably doesn't exist in our our current society. But also go to the Island Press uh, website and use Coast to get yourself a little discount. So uh, listeners to my show know that I always ask a final question of um, where is your favorite beach or coastal area? I use that because I think everyone who works in the coastal field needs inspiration. Um, And so I do want to ask you that question. But I'm also going to ask a second inspiration question today. Uh, because as an author uh, who must have spent many hours at a desk on a computer doing research and typing it out, uh, you probably needed inspiration for writing too. So you've got my two inspiration questions today are, uh, what other books did you use for inspiration? And then where is your favorite beach or coastal area that you take inspiration from?
1: Sure. So uh, really, I have to say uh, from the point of view of inspiration, particularly for a book that led to National policy changes. Silent Spring by Rachel Carson really uh, kind of fits that bill uh, to a T. beautifully written. I can't. Uh, I I aspire uh, to get anywhere close to Rachel Carson as a writer. Uh, I I can't promise you uh, another Silent Spring if you read uh, if you read a New Coast, but uh, certainly was inspired by her uh, beautiful writing and her ability to to frame an issue that uh, drove a national debate and had tremendous policy, uh, and program benefits and, and really has, is even today, uh, protecting and, uh, the environment and, uh, and people's health, uh, in ways that are just uh, too many to count. Uh, but I, I, I was inspired by a number of other authors, uh, uh, Wallace Stegner's, uh, Beyond the 100th Meridian is a wonderful summary of, a. The environmental challenges in in the West, and I also I love anything that E.O. Wilson writes. Uh, any of his books are 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 worth reading, and and all of them are inspirational.
0: All good. Uh, certainly, certainly, Rachel Carson is our you know the, the founder of the environmental literature movement. I always I always find inspiration from uh, the sea around us, uh, coming at it from a coastal perspective. Yes, I think that great. Nice. Yeah. Perhaps maybe a little underrated, or just not not as well known as Silent Spring. Okay, uh, your favorite coastal area?
1: Well, Reed State Park in Georgetown, Maine, uh, has a long, beautiful beach and dune system. The ocean water's pretty cold, uh, but if you time it right, uh, there's a there's a big marsh behind the dunes, and the high tide in Maine is is pretty high, ten feet. And when the water gets back into that dune system on the mudflats, it warms up and and if you time it as the tide's coming out uh, you can catch that warm water coming out of the marsh uh, makes the ocean water just bearable Uh, (laughs) uh, it's a it's a peaceful place with a lot of memories so uh, i'd encourage anybody to check out reed state park
0: but maybe not too many keep it private enough to be beautiful
1: it's had a it's had a loyal following and a few more people probably aren't gonna aren't gonna be too much
0: but well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for writing this book. I think it's a, a good addition to um, environmental policy and, and environmental political science. Uh, and thanks for speaking with me today.
1: Well, thank you for having me.